Chapter 1, Part 3 of Apologia Pro Vita Sua by John Henry Cardinal Newman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bill McGillivray. There is one remaining source of my opinions to be mentioned, and that far from the least important. In proportion as I moved out of the shadow of that liberalism which had hung over my course, my early devotion towards the Fathers returned, and in the long vacation of 1828 I set about to read them chronologically, beginning with St. Ignatius and St. Justin. About 1830 a proposal was made to me by Mr. Hugh Rose, who with Mr. Lyell, afterwards Dean of Canterbury, was providing writers for a theological library to furnish them with a history of the principal councils. I accepted it and at once set to work on the Council of Nicaea. It was to launch myself on an ocean with currents innumerable, and I was drifted back first to the anti-Nicaean history, and then to the Church of Alexandria. The work at least appeared under the title of The Arians of the Fourth Century, and of its 422 pages, the first 117 consisted of introductory matter, and the Council of Nicaea did not appear till the 254th, and then occupied at most 20 pages. I do not know when I first learned to consider that antiquity was the true exponent of the doctrine of Christianity and the basis of the Church of England, but I take it for granted that the works of Bishop Bull, which at this time I read, were my chief introduction to this principle, the course of reading which I pursued in the composition of my volume was directly adapted to develop it in my mind. What principally attracted me in the anti-Nicene period was the great church of Alexandria, the historical center of teaching in those times. Of Rome, for some centuries, comparatively little is known. The battle of Arianism was first fought in Alexandria, Athanasius, the champion of the truth, was the bishop of Alexandria, and in his writings he refers to the great religious names of an earlier date, to Origen, Dionysius, and others who were the glory of its see or of its school. The broad philosophy of Clement and Origen carried me away, the philosophy, not the theological doctrine, and I have drawn out some features of it in my volume, with the zeal and freshness but with the partiality of a neophyte. Some portions of their teaching, magnificent in themselves, came like music to my inward ear, as if the response to ideas, which, with little external to encourage them, I had cherished so long. These were based on the mystical or sacramental principle, and spoke of the various economies or dispensations of the eternal. I understood these passages to mean that the exterior world, physical and historical, was but the manifestation to our sense of realities greater than itself. Nature was a parable, scripture was an allegory, pagan literature, philosophy, and mythology properly understood were but a preparation for the gospel. The Greek poets and sages were in a certain sense prophets, for thoughts beyond their thought to those high bards were given. There had been a directly divine dispensation granted to the Jews, 
but there had been in some sense a dispensation carried on in favor of the Gentiles. He who had taken the seed of Jacob for his elect people had not therefore cast the rest of mankind out of his sight. In the fullness of time both Judaism and paganism had come to naught. The outward framework, which concealed yet suggested the living truth, had never been intended to last, and it was dissolved under the beams of the sun of justice, which shone behind it and through it. The process of changes had been slow. It had been done not rashly, but by rule and measure, at sundry times and in diverse manners, first one disclosure and then another, till the whole evangelical doctrine was brought into full manifestation, and thus room was made for the anticipation of further and deeper disclosures, of truth still under the veil of the letter, and in their season to be revealed. The visible world still remains without its divine interpretation. Holy Church in her sacraments and her hierarchical appointments will remain even to the end of the world, after all but a symbol of those heavenly facts which fill eternity. Her mysteries are but the expression in human language of truth to which the human mind is unequal. It is evident how much there was in all this correspondence with the thoughts which had attracted me when I was young, and with the doctrine which I have already associated with the analogy and the Christian year. It was, I suppose, to the Alexandrian school and to the early church that I owe in particular what I definitely held about the angels. I viewed them not only as the ministers employed by the Creator in the Jewish and Christian dispensations, as we find on the face of Scripture, but as carrying on, as Scripture also implies, the economy of the visible world. I consider them as the real cause of motion, light, and life, and of those elementary principles of the physical universe, which, when offered in their development to our senses, suggest to us the notion of cause and effect, and of what are called the laws of nature. This doctrine I have drawn out of my sermon for Michaelmas Day, written in 1831. I say of the angels, Every breath of air and ray of light and heat, every beautiful prospect is, as it were, the skirts of their garments, the waving of the robes of those whose faces see God. Again I ask, what would be the thought of a man who, when examining a flower, or a herb, or a pebble, or ray of light, which he treats as something so beneath him in the scale of existence, suddenly discovered that he was in the presence of some powerful being, who was hidden behind the visible things he was inspecting, who, though concealing his wise hand, was giving them their beauty, grace, and perfection, as being God's instrument for the purpose, nay, whose robe and ornaments those objects were, which he was so eager to analyze. And I therefore remark that we may say with grateful and simple hearts, with the three holy children, O all ye works of the Lord, etc., etc. Bless ye the Lord, praise him, and magnify him forever. Also, besides the host of evil spirits, I consider there was a middle race, O Wovia, neither in heaven nor in hell, partially fallen, capricious, wayward, 
noble or crafty, benevolent or malicious, as the case might be. These beings gave a sort of inspiration or intelligence to races, nations, and classes of men. Hence the action of body politics and associations, which is often so different from that of individuals who compose them. Hence the character and the instinct of states and governments of religious communities and communions. I thought these assemblages had their life in certain unseen powers. My preference of the personal to the abstract would naturally lead me to this view. I thought it countenanced by the mention of the Prince of Persia in the Prophet Daniel, and I think I considered that it was of such intermediate beings that the Apocalypse spoke in its notice of the Angels of the Seven Churches. In 1837 I made a further development of this doctrine. I said to an intimate and dear friend, Samuel Francis Wood, in a letter which came into my hands on his death, I have an idea. The mass of the fathers, Justin, Athenagoras, Arrhenius, Clement, Tertullian, Origen, Lactantius, Sulpicius, Ambrose, Naziazen, hold that, though Satan fell from the beginning, the angels fell before the deluge, falling in love with the daughters of men. This has lately come across me as a remarkable solution of a notion, which I cannot help holding. Daniel speaks as if each nation had its guardian angel. I cannot but think that there are beings with a great deal of good in them, yet with great defects, who are the animating principles of certain institutions, etc., etc. Take England with many high virtues, and yet a low Catholicism. It seems to me that John Bull is a spirit neither of heaven nor hell. Has not the Christian Church in its parts surrendered itself to one or other of these simulations of the truth? How are we to avoid Scylla and Charybdis and go straight on to the very image of Christ, etc., etc.? I am aware that what I have been saying will, with many men, be doing credit to my imagination at the expense of my judgment. Hippocleides doesn't care. I am not setting myself up as a pattern of good sense or of anything else. I am but giving a history of my opinions, and that was the view of showing that I have come by them through intelligible process of thought and honest external means. The doctrine indeed of the economy has in some quarters been itself condemned as intrinsically pernicious, as if leading to lying and equivocation, when applied as I have applied it in my remarks upon it in my history of the Arians, to matters of conduct. My answer to this imputation I postpone to the concluding pages of my volume. While I was engaged in writing my work upon the Arians, great events were happening at home and abroad which brought out into form and passionate expression the various beliefs which had so gradually been winding their way into my mind. Shortly before there had been a revolution in France, the Bourbons had been dismissed, and I held that it was unchristian for nations to cast off their governors, and much more sovereigns who had the divine right of inheritance. Again the great reform agitation was going on around me as I wrote, 
The Whigs had come into power. Lord Grey had told the bishops to set their house in order, and some of the prelates had been insulted and threatened in the streets of London. The vital question was, how were we to keep the church from being liberalized? There was such apathy on the subject in some quarters, such imbecile alarm in others, the true principles of churchmanship seemed so radically decayed, and there was such distraction in the councils of the clergy. Bloomfield, the Bishop of London of the day, an active and open-hearted man, had been for years engaged in diluting the high orthodoxy of the church by the introduction of members of the evangelical body into places of influence and trust. He had deeply offended men who agreed in opinion with myself by an off-handed saying, as it was reported, to the effect that belief in the apostolical succession had gone out with the non-jurors. We can count you, he said to some of the gravest and most venerated persons of the old school. In the evangelical party itself, with their late successes, seemed to have lost that simplicity and unworldliness which I admired so much in Milner and Scott. It was not that they did not venerate such men as Ryder, the then Bishop of Lichfield, and others of similar sentiments, who were not yet promoted out of the ranks of the clergy, but I thought little of the evangelicals as a class. I thought they played into the hands of the liberals. With the establishment thus divided and threatened, thus ignorant of its true strength, I compared that fresh, vigorous power of which I was reading in the first centuries. In her triumphant zeal on behalf of that primeval mystery to which I had had so great a devotion from my youth, I recognized the movement of my spiritual mother. In sesu patuit die, the self-conquest of her ascetics, the patience of her martyrs, the irresistible determination of her bishops, the joyous swing of her advance both exalted and abashed me. I said to myself, look on this picture and on that. I felt affection for my own church, but not tenderness. I felt dismay at her prospects, anger and scorn at her do-nothing perplexity. I thought that if liberalism once got a footing within her, it was sure of the victory in the event. I saw that Reformation principles were powerless to rescue her. As to leaving her, the thought never crossed my imagination. Still I ever kept before me that there was something greater than the established Church, and that that was the Church Catholic and Apostolic set up from the beginning, of which she was but the local presence in the organ. She was nothing unless she was this. She must be dealt with strongly or she would be lost. There was need for a second reformation. At this time I was disengaged from college duties, and my health had suffered from labor involved in the composition of my volume. It was ready for the press in July, 1832, though not published till the end of 1833. I was easily persuaded to join Horel Frode and his father, who were going to the south of Europe for the health of the former. We set out in December 1832. It was during this expedition that my verses, which are in the Lyra Apostolica, were written. A few indeed before it, but not more than one or two of them after it. 
exchanging as i was definite tutorial work and the literary quiet and pleasant friendship of the last six years for foreign countries in an unknown future i naturally was led to think that some inward changes as well as some larger course of action was coming upon me at whitchurch while waiting for the down mail to falmouth i wrote the verses about my guardian angel which began with the words are these the tracks of some unearthly friend and which go on to speak of the vision which haunted me that vision is more or less brought out in the whole series of these compositions i went to various coasts of the mediterranean parted with my friends at rome went down for the second time to sicily without companion at the end of april and got back to england by palermo in the early part of july the strangeness of foreign life threw me back into myself i found pleasure in historical sights and beautiful scenes not in men and manners we kept clear of catholics throughout our tour i had a conversation with the dean of malta a most pleasant man lately dead but it was about the fathers and the library of the great church i knew the abbot santini at rome who did no more than copy for me the gregorian tones Froday and i made two calls upon monsignore now cardinal wiseman at the collegio inglese shortly before we left rome once we heard him preach at the church in the corso i do not recollect being in a room with any other ecclesiastics except a priest at castro giovanni in sicily who called on me when i was ill and with whom i wished to hold a controversy as to church services we attended the tenebrae at the sestine for the sake of the miserere and that was all my general feeling was all save the spirit of man is divine i saw nothing but what was external of the hidden life of catholics i knew nothing i was still more driven back into myself and felt my isolation england was in my thoughts solely and the news from england came rarely and imperfectly the bill for the suppression of the irish seas was in progress and filled my mind i had fierce thoughts against the liberals it was the success of the liberals cause which fretted me inwardly i became fierce against its instruments and its manifestations a french vessel was at algiers i would not even look at the tricolor on my return though forced to stop twenty-four hours at paris i kept indoors the whole time and all that i saw of that beautiful city was what i saw from the diligence the bishop of london had already sounded me as to my filling one of the whitehall preacherships which he had just then put on a new footing but i was indignant at the line which he was taking and from my steamer i had sent him a letter declining the appointment by anticipation should it be offered to me at this time i was specially annoyed with dr arnold though it did not last into latter years someone i think asked in conversation at rome whether a certain interpretation of scripture was christian it was answered that dr arnold took it i interposed but is he a christian the subject went out of my head at once when afterwards i was taxed with it i could say no more in explanation than what i believe was the fact that i must have had in mind 
some free views of Dr. Arnold about the Old Testament, I thought I must have meant Arnold's answer for the interpretation, but who is to answer for Arnold? It was at Rome, too, that we began the Lyra Apostolica, which appeared monthly in the British magazine. The motto shows the feeling of both Froude and myself at the time. We borrowed from M. Bunsen a Homer, and Froude chose the words in which Achilles, on returning to the battle, says, You shall know the difference, now that I am back again. Especially when I was left by myself, the thoughts came upon me that deliverances is wrought, not by the many, but by the few, not by bodies, but by persons. Now it was, I think, that I repeated to myself the words which had ever been dear to me from my school days, Exuriare aliquis, now too, that Southey's beautiful poem of Thalaba, for which I had an immense liking, came forcibly to my mind. I begin to think that I had a mission. There are sentences of my letters to my friends to this effect, if they are not destroyed. When we took leave of Monsignore Wiseman, we had courteously expressed a wish that we might make a second visit to Rome. I said with great gravity, We have work to do in England. I went down at once to Sicily, and the presentment grew stronger. I struck into the middle of the island, and fell ill of a fever at Leon Fort. My servant thought that I was dying, and begged for my last directions. I gave them as he wished, but I said, I shall not die, I repeated, I shall not die, for I have not sinned against light, I have not sinned against light. I never have been able to quite make out what I meant. I got to Castro Giovanni, and was laid out there for nearly three weeks. Towards the end of May I left for Palermo, taking three days for the journey. Before starting from my inn in the morning of May 26th or 27th, I sat down on my bed and began to sob violently. My servant, who had acted as my nurse, asked what ailed me. I could only answer him, I have a work to do in England. I was aching to get home, yet for one of a vessel, I was kept at Palermo for three weeks. I began to visit the churches, and they calmed my impatience, though I did not attend any services. I knew nothing of the presence of the Blessed Sacrament there. At last I got off in an orange boat bound for Marseilles. Then it was that I wrote the lines, Lead Kindly Light, which have since become well known. We were becalmed a whole week in the Straits of Bonifacio. I was writing verses the whole time of my passage. At length I got to Marseilles and set off for England. The fatigue of traveling was too much for me, and I was laid up for several days at Lyons. At last I got off again, and did not stop night or day, except a compulsory delay at Paris, till I reached England and my mother's house. My brother had arrived from Persia only a few hours before. This was on the Tuesday. The following Sunday, July 14th, Mr. Keebley preached the Assize Sermon in the University Pulpit. It was published under the title of National Apostasy. I have ever considered and kept the day as the start of the religious movement of 1833. End of chapter 1 Part 3